Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to today's Cheapside debate. Uh, my name is Jeremy Caddick. I'm the Dean at Emmanuel College in Cambridge. And today our topic is embryology. It's, um, it's nearly, th it was more than 30 years since the birth of Louise Brown, the first IVF baby. In those years, this technology has opened up a huge range of new possibilities, bringing hope to infertile people and also new possibilities for treatment of disease. IVF and the associated developments are clearly good news for the estimated three million children who have been born as a result of this technology, but the sheer speed of the development has often seemed, at least, to leave theologians, philosophers and policy makers struggling to keep up. Parliament is currently doing just that. It is debating a new human fertilization and embryology bill. It's a revision of the act that was passed in 1990 that currently regulates the use of IVF and related treatment. So today we are thinking about all the issues that that raises. And to help us do that, uh, we have Lee Rayfield, who is the Bishop of Swindon, who in a previous life was a working scientist and immunologist uh, with more than 30 scientific papers to his credit. Since being ordained, he has helped the church to think about these issues, and he is currently a member of the Gene Therapy Advisory Committee. Robert Key is the Conservative Member of Parliament for Salisbury, uh, and he has been involved in the evolution of the current bill, serving on select committees in Parliament. Robert, could you tell us where we are at the moment? It's a very great privilege to be asked to join you today. And I've been asked to set the scene by saying where we're at in Parliament and what I think is going on. The High Court of Parliament is de facto the nation's national bioethics commission. If we didn't have such a body, we'd have to invent it, but we do. It works and we don't need another. For all my adult life, I've followed the accelerating world of genetics. I was a member of the Medical Research Council in the late 1980s and a member of the 1990 Human Fertilization and Embryology Bill Standing Committee. More recently, I took evidence on the Human Reproductive Technology and the Law Inquiry for the Science and Technology Committee in the last Parliament. And last summer, I sat with the Joint Lords and Commons Committee on the draft Human Tissue and Embryos Bill. The nine peers and nine commoners included a Church of England bishop, a member of the We Free Church in Scotland, a Roman Catholic laywoman, a Jewish rabbi, a practicing Jew, and a member of the General Synod of the Church of England. Such was the quality of our work and the strength of our report that the government was forced to abandon a major pillar of their bill and rename it the Human Fertilization and Embryology Bill. Underpinning all British legislation in this field are three moral 
pillars. First, all human tissue is special and must be treated with unique respect. Secondly, no research on human embryos is legal beyond 14 days when the primitive streak appears, signifying the stage at which brain cells can be differentiated. Thirdly, under no circumstances can trial genetic material be implanted in a woman. When Parliament has decided the tight legal framework of permitted research, the independent Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority will apply the tests of whether any proposed research is necessary and desirable. This bill is absolutely essential because on behalf of the nation, Parliament must decide where to draw a line in the sand and say to scientists thus far and no further. Medical breakthroughs often break taboos as well. Few people are now revolted by pigs' heart valves replacing faulty human ones. I've never heard anyone complain about genes added to farm animals to make insulin. Have you heard theologians attacking the wonder of the Human Genome Project with its huge potential for human health and life because they used fused animal and human cells? The medieval ranting of Cardinal Keith O'Brien, who said that the bill represents a monstrous attack on human rights, is just sad. They're in marked contrast to the tone and substance of the civilized, well-informed debate we had with senior officials at the Vatican in Rome. And they're in stark opposition to the letter all members of parliament have received from the world president of Catholics for Choice, who tell us that Roman Catholic bishops do not speak on behalf of all Catholics and do not represent the totality of Catholic teaching. The pre-enlightenment ravings of the Bishop of Durham on Easter Sunday, who describes people who think like me as part of a militant, atheist, secularist lobby, a description I don't recognize as a traditional, tolerant, Catholic member of the Church of England, are in line with the letter from a constituent who is a member of the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, who complained that the bill will make possible the creation of savior siblings whose destiny is to be chopped up when needed. Or another constituent who wrote, as a Christian, I am certain that our Lord is very disappointed with your current position. No, I agree with the Church of England Mission and Public Affairs Council, who in evidence to us last summer said, this yuck factor is neither a final arbiter of acceptability nor necessarily the artifact of unscientific and uneducated thought. Rather, it reminds us to pause and consider carefully where the appropriate boundaries should lie and to seek wisdom to do so. God's angel, Mary, Told, God's angel told Mary that she would give birth to a child without a male sexual partner. That is totally unnatural. In fact, it sounds like therapeutic cloning. Yet some theologians say we must never intervene to enable a pregnancy or to prevent one. Do what they think God said, not what God did. And what of Adam and Eve? The Old Testament tells us, so it must be true, surely, 
that the first woman was created from the rib of a man. That's therapeutic cloning too. So who's playing God in 2008? The Bible says that when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they were able to tell good from evil. They could make ethical decisions based on their capacity for moral judgment. That is the destiny of mankind, what makes us different from the rest of creation. I think it's more likely that some theologians are playing God while God works in mysterious ways to help us understand his creation and help ourselves. Jesus was told by the priests that if he healed on the Sabbath, he'd be breaking the law of God. He ignored them. Healing the sick, Sabbath or not, is a moral imperative for mankind. Or, as the Mission and Public Affairs Council put it, because of the Christian mandate to seek healing, we believe that there are situations addressing the serious medical need of others in which it is permissible to use or select against in vitro embryos. Human admixed embryos should be welcomed because they replace the need for scarce human eggs in the fight against horrible killer diseases such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, motor neurone disease, multiple sclerosis, cancer, HIV and AIDS, as well as treating infertility. Human admixed embryos behave like embryos, but they're not embryos. They're not the product of a sperm and an egg. Using animal eggs to reprogram adult skin cells in a cluster without a nervous system is not creating human life. These cells have the huge advantage that they would contain a patient's own DNA, thus avoiding tissue rejection. There are many other controversial aspects of this legislation, but I want to put it in a personal context as I draw to a close. Our first son, James, was born with a rare, terrible genetic disorder, a chromosome 13 partial monosomy. He was christened. After five days of living with this dear, tortured person on his life support machine, and after much prayer and consultation and in view of the prognosis, it was not hard to tell the doctors to switch it off. Nearly 40 years ago, genetics was in its infancy. Today, the story would have been very different. My wife and I now have three wonderful children and three wonderful grandchildren, and we thank God for science and for the good and gifted clinicians who are inspired to use his gifts. My mother was amazing. She went to Bible college, and in her 20s, she founded a girls' secondary school in Devon. She married the rector of the parish, and they lived through the Blitz in Plymouth. He became a bishop. She became a magistrate and full-time bishop's wife. The helpless little old lady who died of Alzheimer's was not the same person her four children loved and admired. As a Christian, I believe it's our moral responsibility to heal the sick, and that the means of doing this will never stand still. We will all die because something goes wrong with our mortal frame. Surely, God sent us Jesus to save us from the superstitions of the ancient world and to challenge us always to strive for a better world for all his creation. Thank you. Bishop.
Thank you. Thank you, Robert. And uh, thank you all for being here and inviting me to share today. Um, when Robert and I first uh, realized we were both being invited to speak together in a debate, we realized there was a lot of common ground. <laughs> so what I want to move on from, from what Robert has said, is I do want to affirm that Christian mandate to heal, but I want to ask the questions about what are the limits of it. And that's where we are creatively engaging in debate over the precise details of this new embryology bill. And the first thing about it is it's tremendously complex. It's complex in terms of what's proposed. It's complex in terms of its breadth because it deals with a whole range of things that the government is wanting to try and future-proof. So the government is trying to put in place some legislation which will last a long time. There is a great difficulty in that because, as Robert alluded to, the pace of scientific advance means it's quite difficult to future-proof. The complexity of the bill means that there's a whole pile of ethical issues which seem to be running into one another. Or you can concentrate on one thing and miss something else. And so it's very, very important that we have a good debate about this bill and that we have opportunity to look at it carefully as, as Robert's been part of that. What I want to say to start with is that we must refuse caricatures. There was a, a group, three uh, researchers did some research on films. They published it in 2003 and they looked at 222 films and how science was portrayed. And they found that of those 222 movies, um, the most alarming depictions from science were where there was modification of and intervention into the human body, the violation of human nature, and threats to human health by means of science. And time and again, the movies depicted researchers as either flawed, corrupt, immoral, self-serving, or downright evil. And I feel that um, sometimes bishops in the Church of England are rather caricatured in a slightly different way. That we're all naysayers, no to this, no to that. That is not the case, but what we do need is careful, nuanced reading of what this bill is saying and where it is going to change the ground. And let me take, first of all, this issue of the embryo and the specialness of the embryo. Roberts alluded to the fact that the embryo is given protection up to 14 days at the moment, and that is intended to continue. That is something that the Church of England, through the Mission and Public Affairs Council, has said is a sensible and a humble place to draw a line. But does that mean you can do anything you like on an embryo? Does the mean saying you're going to be healing justify putting an embryo through to any, any process? And when we look at that, one of the things that I feel strongly about is that the embryo should never be seen as a means to an end. And one of the things that the Church of England has said is that no 
embryos should be produced by IVF, in other words, by sexual means, taking a sperm and an egg, which is going to be used only for research. That is an important thing to say because when you're using spare embryos, it means you're saying that that embryo was never intended to be simply a tool for human research. It was always intended to be a human being. But because of the wastage associated with IVF techniques, the spare embryos, you have to make a decision about what you're going to do with them. And we, with humility and with um, the provisions of the legislation to protect what research is done, in the Church of England, we would say that is, it's possible to do research. Now, when I say the Church of England, I need to say there are lots of people in the Church of England who will disagree with what I've just said. There are people who take principled stances who will say that the place to draw a line is when an egg is fertilizing, or when an egg is fertilized, and that there is a continuum. And I think we have to just acknowledge, even though I disagree with that, that it is a principled, legitimate stand. <coughs> And there are people who are not of any particular religious faith who might also take that position. And we need to listen to their arguments in this debate and take account of them, even if we make a different position at the end of the day. But the kind of questions that have been raised have been to do with the commodification of the embryo. Are we able to do anything we like with an embryo? or is there a limit to be drawn? Why the cybrids, so-called cytoplasmic hybrids, have been thrust into the limelight is because people, whether they are of Christian faith or another faith or of no particular faith, find the ambiguous nature of a cybrid, a fusion between an animal nucleus and a human cell, uh, a human nucleus and an animal cell. Let me just say that again. It's an animal cell with its nucleus taken out with a human nucleus put in. That there is an ambiguous status about this. Now again, I personally and thinking ethically about that believe that actually if there are sufficient safeguards and it's the only way to make some progress, one can put some limits, one could allow it. But actually this is very speculative research. And one of the problems we have in dealing with this whole bill is the way that there is a lot of um, hype about what might be possible and that there are cures around the corner. And I would say we have to be very careful about um, legitimizing anything or letting something come uh, under the thrall of hype. Because when something doesn't deliver because it's overhyped, you actually lose the benefits and blessings of that technology. In other words, we need to be very careful to make sure that the blessings of something through God's creativity and his redemptive potential are not lost because of hype. I've only got a short time to introduce this and I want to draw attention to one of the issues that in the bill which we did feel particularly anxious about. And that is the um, authorization of IVF uh, fertilization procedures for either single parents 
or same-sex couples. There is a very big departure in what the bill is going to permit in the future because up until now, it's been clear in legislation that the child's need for a father has to be taken into account. The government are trying to iron out the discrepancy between the fact that people can go and pay for IVF, whether they're single parents or same-sex couples, uh, and there is no legislation against that. But once, as a government, you say it is completely okay to offer IVF when the child has no possibility of a father, that is taking... Um, that is moving the game on quite a bit, because what about the child's right to have a father? Should we be bringing in children into the world when there is actually no possibility of knowing their biological father? This is very different from adoption, where there's a failure of what is going on in society, in relationships, where children are not given the security and upbringing they need. It's also not to say that same-sex couples or single people bringing up children are lesser parents. It is simply to say that there is a very important uh, matter of connecting the child to be brought into the, the world with their biological inheritance, with the need for a father. And I think this is sneaking through under the radar with all the discussions about cybrids and fusing animals and human cells. And I think we need to be very careful about that. That's probably as much as I can say at the moment, and then we're going to have debate, I think. Thank you very much indeed. C could I just clarify, before we move on to... Mm. to um, questions and comments from you. Um, what you, something you said earlier on, uh, that an embryo, as far as you were concerned, shouldn't be used as a means to an end, and therefore creating embryos for research would never be justified. Is that, is that this an is accurate reflection? This is bisexual means. So in other words, by, by, by saying let's allow scientists to take a sperm and an egg and fertilize an egg and then use that embryo to make, for example, embryonic stem cells. Mm -hmm. Now, that we would draw a distinction between making embryos that way and by making them in so-called therapeutic cloning. In other words, to take a human egg and put in, take out its nucleus and put in an adult nucleus, say from a skin cell, and then work with that to derive stem cell lines. That's different, that's an asexual methodology. Mm -hmm. The reason why that embryo needs special protection is because in theory, like Dolly the sheep, you could take that unusually produced embryo, put it into a person, and, and a human being would be born. So it needs some kind of protection. But we have distinguished between that kind of embryo, asexually produced, that will never be, you, never be expected to give rise to a human being, from, if you like, a sexually produced yeah. embryo. As I understand it, it is currently legal to produce embryos uh, sexually for yes, it research. Is. Not very many are. 
are, are you saying that you think that that should be changed and I, that only so-called spare embryos should be used in research? Yes, I am, yeah. actually. I think that the church... I, I think because of the complexity and the numbers of things that come for analysis, maybe this is something that didn't get dealt with properly the first time round. And I think that does happen with these complicated things, that sometimes you realize there are some sand lines that weren't clarified. There's another important thing in the bill, and that is that there is the provision for genetically modifying an embryo at the moment. Now, that is completely against UK legislation that you cannot um, modify any DNA in an embryonic cell, in, a, in a, a gamete, an egg or a sperm. And in the Gene Therapy Advisory Committee, we work very hard to make sure that there is protection, to make sure that there's no genetic modification that could be passed on. So there's a discrepancy in what the government is saying here. And it hasn't said what kind of experiments might be legitimate. So in other words, there's another, they're trying to future-proof too much. Right. And I'm, you just can't do it. Thank you. Over to you. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, then the rector has a microphone to help you be heard, if you could indicate by raising your hand. I'm, I'm by no means a scientist, and I'm, and I'm struggling to understand all this, but am I not right in saying there's all this talk about embryos? We're not actually talking about embryos, we're talking about embryonic cells, many of which are wasted naturally in any case. So does that not somewhat alter the argument that we're here to try to understand. Uh, Robert, would you like to respond? The answer is yes. And back in 1990, I took advice from my then bishop in Salisbury on this point. He was, is a substantial theologian. And he pointed out that given that 80% of fertilized embryos are wasted anyway, better to use them than not on balance. Uh, one of the other great problems we have is that Parliament, and particularly government, is as it were making it up as it goes along. If I explain that on the joint committee, the distinguished former Lord Chancellor, Lord Mackay, who's a wee free, and Lord Winston, were trying to understand the government's definition of an embryo. And both of them said, we haven't got a clue what this means. And the government itself was proposing to put into the legislation a completely unagreed definition, uh, which we had to persuade them to completely change. They had to go away and rewrite that part of the bill. Another problem that we all face is that of what do people really think? about this? And the answer is, we don't know. There are people at either end of the argument who feel very, very passionately that it's either should go much further or should be stopped in its tracks. We have little evidence other than a few polls 
of small numbers of people, which suggests that 70% of people in this country are in favor of embryo research without going any deeper than that about what is an embryo. The problem about future-proofing, I agree so much with what the bishop said. The government is trying to future-proof the legislation because things are moving so fast. What the joint committee has recommended is that we set pretty tight parameters, but that we don't try and put on the face of the primary legislation specific research projects which we guess might be undertaken in the future. We set the principles, and it's for the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority to decide case by case what meets those criteria of whether it's uh, acceptable and desirable, beneficial. Um, and so uh, I agree with you very strongly that uh, there is a real problem here, and as the, the bishop has explained, and I agree wholeheartedly with what he said about some spare embryos on a case-by-case -case basis being able to be used. Thank you. Have you have anything to add? I, that's, that's been said very well. The, the, um, the way that Christians come at this, not just Christians, I imagine, but it's whether you take an absolutist viewpoint so that the fertilized egg is equivalent to a human individual and to be given the same rights as you or I, or whether there is another point where you can say, we can't give it the same rights and same respect as you or I and before this point, but we must do afterwards, and 14 days is the moment. And that the general position of the Church of England is that <clears throat> this gradualist position that, yes, we would not say the early embryo, fertilized egg, whatever we want to define it, however we're going to say, is equivalent to a, a fully protected human being. But in, in saying that some things may be permissible, we have to be very careful about how we're going to respect that that is different from just the egg and the sperm that started off. So it's how do we get some limits and how do we have consistency in our ethics and how do we stop, well, I mean, I would say, how do we stop the push to legitimize anything because it might help someone at some point in the future. There's one obvious response to the, to the question, how do, we, how do we achieve consistency and stop, stop a slide towards things that we wouldn't expect, which is the straightforward, abs what you've termed the absolutist position, mm. that says that you know, fr from conception uh, a person exists that has a number of awkward consequences in terms of the sorts of research that are, would no longer be permitted. It would achieve consistency, though, wouldn't it? But it, it would be, it's consistent. I do want to say I respect people completely who hold that absolutist position. I disagree with them, like Robert, but uh, because I think there are good grounds for saying the human person doesn't begin before two, two weeks of life after fertilization. But I think the kind of issues that we're trying to deal with is what is allowable in that two weeks? And can we produce anything we like? And the particular issue of fusing human and uh, human nuclei into 
animal eggs, which has created a lot of heat, is because people are anxious that in some way that's infringing human dignity. I think it's a very difficult issue. But I'm prepared to, to humbly say we can do limited things. But again, we need to hear the voices of those that say this is a step too far. And there are real issues for us as a democracy. And how do we hold on to views which are different from the, de the, the majority view, but which are held with moral conviction? And how do we allow people to engage in debate? Let me give you an example of that. Listening to a, a good radio program, a ra Radio 4, where a lot of respect is given to the participants, I heard somebody say to a Catholic, we know what you think. We know what you think. So, you know, you're out of the game now. And I think somehow the government, and this is something we've argued for, how do we allow those who say, I can't agree with this, but I want to still be engaged in the thinking and the debate for the future. This is going to test us as a mature democracy, how we keep people who say awkward things to us engaged. Okay. Uh, the bishop spoke, uh, spoke about giving rights to embryos. Mm -hmm. Isn't it more a question of actually us assuming rights for ourselves? Because life is sacred. The science has not discovered the origin of life, how it came about. Uh, there's very little the science knows, and the scientists are the first to accept that. So isn't it therefore our responsibility to actually to, uh, to judge for our, well, not judge, uh, to actually prove to ourselves what rights we can observe rather than asking what rights the embryos have got. The embryos have no voice, no vote in parliament, and no one basically is defending a particular embryo. So are you saying that we should defend them or we should Exactly, by default, the case should be, I think it would be a completely Christian approach to say that by default you actually have to defend the helpless, the hmm. defenseless um, entity rather than saying, well, we have a right to do this and we have a, rather, uh, a right to do that. I think that's yeah. very unchristian in the, in the approach. Well, well uh, sir, can I... I'm just wondering how to engage with this, because first of all, I agree absolutely with the defending the, def the defenseless. That is a, it's an absolute Christian um, mandate. As you are doing that, though, are you, you, you have, we've been given the capacities for reason, reflection, thinking about, prayerfully considering a whole range of things together. And to say we must absolutely protect a fertilized egg as an embryo because it can't speak for itself, that is, that seems to me to be a step too far. You have to say, well, we've been given um, the, the creative and redemptive capacities by God to think through what might be an ethically acceptable use of tissues which otherwise we're going to throw away. Because when you produce IVF embryos, some of them are not going to be used. Do you then just flush them away? Or do you say, 
because that's not exactly looking after the defenseless, is it? So you've got to use some kind of other reasoning on top of this and look at your obligation to do what is godly and just. May, may I please uh, yeah. add something to that from a, 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 a parliamentary point of view? It's very important that one or two issues do not dominate the whole debate in the passage mm. of this legislation. The whole thing could be derailed by perfectly uh, legitimate in-order amendments about abortion. In fact, the government is not proposing any changes to abortion. And I have specifically not even touched on that in what I had to say. And I hope that it won't derail the debate mm. on a lot of other very important issues, such as the need for a father, which the bishop has referred to, and I wholly agree with him. I'm a bit of a convert here, along with several other members of the committee uh, that met last summer, the Joint Committee of Lords and Commons. I understood where the government was coming from. They were saying we should not discriminate against sing single-sex relationships or gay people, um, and if it is permissible to allow them to uh, have a child, uh, that's, that should be fine. And it's perfectly obvious uh, if they are a lesbian couple that there won't be a father. Uh, but, but the bill actually has a clause in it which defines if a, a father, in certain circumstances, as a female for purposes of the act. Well, this is actually going a bit too far. And during taking evidence, it was perfectly clear to me that my constituents are not ready for that. I could just about live with the idea. It's very hard for us, but I could probably live with it. But I don't think my constituents are ready to live with that. And I shall therefore be voting against the government's proposals to do away with the need for a father. Because I, I think that it sends all the wrong signals uh, in, in a society where the breakdown of the family seems to me to be responsible for so much that's wrong in society. So uh, the need for a father is something which I hope will not be subsumed in a whole lot of other debates. Uh, we must take each of these debates very seriously as they come. Thank you. Uh, the bishop, I think, said just now, we need to find a way of identifying uh, what is godly and just in mm. this area. And it seems to me the problem is that most of us just don't know and don't have enough knowledge and really want to be able to delegate that decision to somebody that we can trust. And the problem with society at the moment, and I think this is just a manifestation of it, is we are very short of people who we can trust, and with all due respect to you, sir, that includes members of parliament. And the idea of uh, 625, or however many it is, uh, deciding these issues, uh, partly under a whip, just seems to me a, a ludicrous way of addressing these issues. And what I would like to see um, is some fellows, the Royal Society or whatever, a group of people who we could trust, but we know that that is just too difficult at the moment because even scientists are driven by greed or uh, ambition for fame and Nobel Prizes or to attract funding to their university or institution, which gets in the way of making 
just and godly decisions. And I think for the time being, I'm not surprised that so many people want to be very careful because they want, don't feel they can probably move on until we can find a more trusting framework. Um, I went to a museum a little while ago where Dr. Janna uh, was commemorated and he injected um, cowpox into a little girl and it seemed to me that that was an extraordinarily risky and brave thing to do. It could have gone horribly wrong uh, for her, her family and for him, but it didn't. We will make mistakes in all this, these fields in the years to come, probably some horrible mistakes because that's the only way we make progress, but we've got to be sufficiently mature to say it did go wrong, but the people who authorized it we trusted and we have to live with the consequences. And I just yeah. think we're a long way from that at the moment, and I'd like to know how we get there. Well, I'm a convert here too, Chairman, uh, because I thought the only answer to this was to have a National Bioethics Commission. And uh, on, in the last Parliament, on the Science and Technology Committee, when we were looking at this human reproduction and the law issue, we actually went to Sweden to see how they do it with their National Bioethics Commission. Of course, being Sweden, they all agreed with everything anyway. Um, and so th there really wasn't much argument. We then took an aeroplane from Sweden to Rome. Um, and, and in Rome, we discovered a very interesting division of opinion uh, because the Italian National Bioethics Commission was entirely packed by the government um, with people who agreed with the government who agreed with the Vatican. Um, and so that was an equally useless bioethics commission. And in the end, I agreed that the best bioethics commission was both houses of parliament, a mixture, as we have it, of appointed FRSs, who are there in the House of Lords, plus parliamentarians, despise them or not, they're elected by the people and they represent the people until we're chucked out. Um, and, and I cannot think of a better way of doing it than, than relying on both Houses of Parliament and the Joint Committee, which advised on the draft bill, uh, of achieving what I think you're seeking. Uh, so I'm, I'm a convert to that. I would not wish to see a, bioethics, a National Bioethics Commission apart from that, uh, because I don't know how you could possibly choose it in a, which, in a way which would give anybody more confidence than they can have in a committee of both, or a commission, if you like, of both houses, and that's why one of our recommendations was to establish a standing committee, just as we have a joint standing committee on human rights. We should have one on national bioethics. Right. Bishop, do you think, what role do you think bishops and the church generally would have in that process? Um, one of the things we suggested from our response was the, a, a, a group, a bioethics council, hmm which had people who disagree, who were able to disagree uh, and who wouldn't follow the whip um, in that way. And I think, although people like myself are sometimes characterized as looking after their own interests, you know, most church people are trying to look for the blessing of society. That's what I consider my role. It's not, I want my way, it's what's gonna be good for us. And actually, I think that's what the Houses of Parliament's doing. What's going to be good for it? And we need that creative engagement with one another. I just want to, I know the time is running out. One of the, the, the um, words of scripture which I have tried to use whenever I think about these issues are ones from one of the Old Testament prophets. 
And uh, it's the prophet Micah in chapter 6, verse 8, says, you know, what does the Lord require of you? And the answer is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I think the whole business of justice is looking at what's happening to relationships. And as I look at this bill, and as people look at the bill, we need to be asking, what's this doing to relationships? What's this doing to the relationship in the case of the um, ch children without fathers to the whole understanding of the way society is? What's this doing to our relationship to humanity when we can say anything's justifiable to fix somebody who's living? But loving mercy means that there is always a drive, as Jesus himself showed, to give healing a mandate for mercy. And that's also going to impel us sometimes to take faithful risks. And all the time, I think that the, the, the bishops in the Church of England, the leaders of churches, the leaders of other communities are trying to find what is a justifiable risk and balancing different ethical positions. And I hope that the church will actually be seen as a creative engager in this and not just an obstructor. There's a microphone coming. It's enormously interesting to walk into a debate like this and realize, of course, one's not really thought about it at all because one is part of um, that, uh, that middle marsh that it's neither one extreme nor another. Mm. And I apologize for that. However, it seems to me that um, the affirmation that the bishop has just made of the, um, of the importance of, of mercy mm. is very important. And I just wonder what uh, in a sense, we've debated today something that you are all uh, been debating for a long time, and you've reduced it, therefore, to its irreducible element of 14 days or whatever it is. But I just wonder what the cost uh, of that 14 days has been. What's the downside? Were it 30 days, would uh, research advance more swiftly? Would uh, the longer-term benefits of perhaps in 30 or 20 years' time being able to heal things more swiftly or more effectively be greater because one had given more scope at this stage? In other words, what is the cost? And you've, I'm sure, debated that. What is the... This is even worse. This is a real city question. What is the cost if the UK does one thing um, and Rome does another, or rather Italy does another, and Sweden does a, a third thing? In other words, do you suddenly find that all biomedical science of that sort disappears to um, Stockholm? Now, that I realize in the context of this sort of debate is mere economics, but, but, but what is the downside of the position that you've already adopted? is my question. Well, we did, of course, um, discuss this. Uh, and if I could put in a word for the scientists, and I'm not one, 
Um, I'm a practitioner of the dismal science economics. But uh, the, the, uh, the scientists, the clinicians who are dealing with this every day of their working lives are decent, honorable people with a strong moral and ethical code of their own. Mm. And most of them simply would not cross a line that is unacceptable morally or ethically. And so you, it's only speculation to say, and indeed the bishop is much better qualified as a scientist to say what would be the scientific downside uh, or what is the scientific loss, what is the opportunity cost here. But what I can say is the social cost is, in my view, unacceptable. Uh, and we did have in mind, as a joint committee, what would be the impact on, for example, our ethnic minorities in this country or the signals we sent around the world if we, for example, decided that there was no need for a father. Because in some cultures and nations, there is already, as in the Asian subcontinent, as in China, a strong preference for male children. What does that do if we say you don't need to have a father? Uh, what happens, and we haven't talked about this, if you allow social sex selection? so that at an embryonic stage, you can only choose male embryos to be implanted. And we said, no, that is wrong. Um, so I would say that although it, I don't think you can put a financial cost on it, if we send signals that uh, send irresponsible messages elsewhere, because at the moment, Britain is in the vanguard of this with California, uh, and the regulatory machinery we have in this country with the HFEA is hugely well regarded around the world but the bishop may have another perspective from a scientific point of view. Um, I think that there is going to be a push at some point in the future to go beyond 14 days. That's the way things go. And I think that is a point at which many people will have to say, we've drawn a line in the sand here for good evidence, and unless we've got better evidence, we're not going to go past this phase. I don't really feel adequate to comment on what science... I'm sure scientists will always say the more we can find out, the better it'll be. But at what cost? And I think, you know, when I think of the way that lines have to be drawn for our humanity, and there has been a lot of commercial pressure when I uh, exerted mm -hmm. on these things, because parliamentarians, naturally enough, want to see the economy growing. And there is going to always be commercial pressure to say, this is going to give us a lead. But to be human means to sometimes say, that's not appropriate. That wouldn't be to act justly. That would, not, that would be to devalue what it is to be a human being. There are some things that are just not worth paying the price. And I hope we'll have the moral conviction and courage to do that when that comes along. Thank you which is appropriate as um, we have reached the end of our allotted time. I'm very sorry those of you who wanted to make a contribution but weren't able to. Uh, could we thank our two speakers and thank you also to you. Thank you. Thank you.